Welcome to Objection to the Form. This is Justin Humphreys, and I'm here with a special guest, Steve Baynard. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing great, Justin. Thanks for having me. Steve is the former president of the what's now the 6th District Judicial Bar. And one of the things I wanted to talk about today is exactly what the how the bar <laughs> the bar association is organized and the various districts and what they do and what they don't do because it's something that took me quite a while to to learn and there's a lot of confusion about that. Yeah, there really is. Um, uh, I'm the immediate past president of the sixth judicial district bar, which we just changed. We were the fifth judicial district bar for forever. Uh, and I was actually president of the fifth judicial district bar back in 2005 as well. Um, so you've got the North Carolina State Bar, which is the licensing body for the lawyers. So your certificate that's on your wall is your certificate from the state bar that allows you to practice law. The bar exam is issued by the state bar. The North Carolina Bar Association is a voluntary bar that does a lot of equally good things that the state bar does, um, but you don't have to be a member of the bar association to be a lawyer. You gotta be a member of the state bar. So then each district um, is broken up into multi-county districts. So the, the sixth district, I can still say fifth because it's what I'm used to, but the sixth district is Pender and New Hanover counties. And then each district elects a bar counselor who is basically like your representative in the law legislature, if you will, at the state bar. Brother Cobb is our bar counselor right now who we elected this last time. And that's something I'd like to know more about. What exactly does the bar counselor do? Yeah, the bar counselor is our representative for our state bar. You know, the, the lawyers are self-regulated, so the state bar is who regulates us. So um, they serve on three-year terms, and I think he can do two or three. I can't remember exactly how many he can do. Um, Steve Colberth was one. Bob Johnson was a bar counselor. Um, um, we've had, a, you know, obviously a good number of people. It's usually folks that are unilaterally respected um, among the bar that get elected and do that job. So they go up there. Uh, they have committee meetings once a quarter. Uh, they're there for about four or five days. They vote on various ethical rules. Um, there's all kinds of different committees that they serve on. Of course, they decide who gets disbarred and who gets censured, or if there's any kind of complaints or problems, they decide a lot of those sorts of things. Bar counselors make those decisions? They do. And so what I was always thought, I always thought of the bar counselor is somebody you'd contact if you had an ethical question, maybe outside of going directly to the state bar, or maybe if you felt like you observed uh, some unethical conduct and you wanted to kind of screen it before making a report or telling on somebody, so to speak. Right. I, that's what I always understood the bar counselor to do. Do they have any responsibilities like that? or They do. I mean, they're a great sounding board to go talk to because they're the people that are on the front line that know what the new ethical uh, rules are going to be. There's all kinds of things that are being considered all the time. You know, you can call up and, and ask the bar, uh, uh, you know, any kind of question that you have anonymously, and they have different lawyers who do nothing but enforce the ethical rules. Um, and they'll tell you, they'll give you an advisory opinion as to wh wh whether you have a conflict of interest or whether you're doing something ethically wrong. And you can go to those bar counselors and they know. Um, um, but you can also, there's other recourses. I was also on the uh, Chief Justice Commission for Professionalism, which is uh, an organization that was set up back in 1998 by Burley Mitchell when he was the Chief Justice. Your secured leave that you have as a lawyer, where we all get three weeks of secured leave, yes. is a direct genesis of the Commission for Professionalism. Gave mine, us that, right? mine starts tomorrow. Does your, okay. I'm, I'm stoked, yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Well, you're dressed right for it, yeah, man. I'm, I wish I'm, I was dressed like you I'm right now. I'm ready to get out of here. Um, <laughs> 
But uh, it used to be that you were at the beck and call of a judge. So if you had a very active trial practice and you wanted to go on vacation and your case got called for trial, the judge could literally just say, sorry, you're going to try this case and you'd miss out on your vacation. With a secured leave now, as long as you follow all the rules about how far you do it out and all that kind of stuff, you're good. That's one of the things that really sucks about federal practice is, you know, unless it's in your order right. or, you know, you, there's no kind of just blanket document you can file at the federal level. And, and that's something that, that certainly, you know, caused some consternation in the past, especially with the way they just decide they're changing things. And, yeah. um, you know, what are you going to do? Right. No, for sure. And the, and that's the Commission for Professionalism it does a bunch of different things. Um, they've got a, a judicial response committee. Uh, so let's say a judge gets gets kind of slammed in the newspaper for maybe letting a criminal go on a technicality or something like that. The judges ethically aren't allowed to go in the newspaper and kind of speak up for themselves. They're not allowed to do that. So they can go to the Judicial Response Committee, which is part of the Commission on Professionalism in Raleigh, which is run by Mel Wright, uh, who's the, the, the uh, I guess, the CEO of it, <laughs> the head guy. Uh, uh, and you can call him, and they can. They usually have a group. I was on one of those committees too, um, and it's usually it, it's a it was a uh, kind of a lot of I don't know why I was on that committee to be honest, but I was on that committee probably do more for grunt work. But uh, um, but you know Judge Arnold was on there. I was on there with him. Former Governor Holshouser was on there, and then they can go out and explain in the media why a judge may have made a particular ruling to try to defend him a little bit. How often does that happen? I don't recall ever seeing, and I don't watch a lot of local news, but, right. I, but I don't recall ever seeing a local judge or somebody advocating on behalf of a local judge explaining a, a controversial ruling or something along those lines. And I have not seen that much down here. I had been involved in those. They're usually in the central part of the state and around Charlotte, I guess, the bigger metropolitan centers. Um, but any of those that I've ever been involved in, it was always like Winston-Salem, Greensboro, Charlotte. Um, can't think of one I did in Raleigh, but uh, but haven't had one here. They kind of go after each other in, in that area, don't they, the Guilford County? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, if, if I practice mainly in southeastern North Carolina, but, you know, like, as, as a rule, we don't file a lot of Rule 11 kind of things against each other, just practically speaking. You don't see that very often down here in southeastern North Carolina. You see that a fair amount up in up in the central part of the state. And I think it's because they're bigger and you don't see the same people all the time. I mean, you and I have to deal with the same folks all the time. So yeah. you tend not to burn those bridges when you got to maintain a relationship. Um, but it's a little, little, it's a little different up there. They're still very professional. Right. I'm not trying to say anything like that, but, but then they even have uh, with the commission, he has the professionalism support initiative, which we run through our bar, which is uh, let's say it's not an ethical violation, like a lawyer, you know, is profane or a bully or something like that in a deposition or something like that. That might not be an ethical violation, but it might be a professionalism violation because your ethics are the basic kind of things you have to do just to be a lawyer and keep your license. Professionalism is kind of a little bit above that, a little bit, you know. What kind of sanctions or repercussion or punishment can you face for being unprofessional? Nothing. Um, uh, and that's what the professionalism support initiative is. And we, we it's actually um, engendered in our, um, in our articles for our bar. And the last three immediate past presidents serve as the board members on that. And what you would do is typically you would call the state bar. Some individual would call the state bar and file a complaint. And they say, that's really not an ethical violation. But let me refer you over to the Commission for Professionalism. They would then, Mel would then go out usually and either reach out to your 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 organization of that professionalism in your county or he might go find a lawyer who maybe knows that lawyer 
and kind of do an intervention, completely voluntary. Uh, if they don't want to do it, they don't have to do it. There are no ramifications. It's totally confidential. I've done a number of those before where maybe somebody's not calling their clients back in a timely fashion and they're getting some complaints. So you're trying to nip something in the bud ahead of time. And it's usually uncomfortable in the beginning and they usually get, the lawyer gets upset with you. Um, but once you start talking and talking through everything and kind of getting it all out on the table, it tends to resolve itself. Um, it's been a good tool. Yeah, I imagine that'd be a, a difficult situation going down and sitting with an attorney and tell them you might need to rethink the way either you're behaving or the way that you're running your practice. Yep, it usually helps. Uh, you know, I've done it times. You got to have somebody who they trust, who's a friend of theirs, um, and you bring them in to kind of let them know it's a safe place. Um, and then it starts off poorly, but then it moves through really well. And I think it, it ends up a lot better. And it, what's interesting about it is you can even do it to judges. If you, have a, if you believe a judge is not being professional for whatever reason, you can report the judge. And I've had to do that as a, on, on that initiative committee. <laughs> you had to be the one making the report or you had to be I had participate to go, in the intervention? I had to sit down with a judge and talk to a judge about accusation. And that was not yeah. fun. So when you do that, <laughs> do you bring the complainant in with you? No, or is he, no, no, no. Because no. I imagine you'd want to stay anonymous if you'd made a complaint like that about it a is, judge. It is. It's completely anonymous. It's completely like they're not going to know who it is. Um, and 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 you and you know and I'm not going to say who the judge was yeah. or anything like that. But you sit down and just kind of have it. You talk it through. Um, you really need another judge with you yeah. <laughs> to do that. Well, and, and I which imagine is when hard. you're approaching them, I mean, it's one thing to say somebody that doesn't call their clients back probably has maybe hundreds of people that they haven't called back. But right. if you're going into a judge and you say, well, you know, the the way you acted in that trial, then they're probably thinking, all right, well, who did I screw over in that second? I, that's that's who it was. That's that, that's who made the complaint. Yeah, and I think that's why it's, it's particularly hard is I think they can kind of figure out pretty quickly. And usually the ones that I've been involved in those situations, it's usually district court. That's never real. I've never really been involved in a superior court just because superior court judges move around so much. In district court, sometimes people perceive that they might be friendlier to a particular lawyer because it's a friend of theirs or somebody they've known a long time or and and that seemed to be where those kinds of things came up and it's yeah. it's you know it, it gets handled very very well though. Well especially like in those family law cases you're dealing with the same judge throughout the dependency of the action and you might have five or six superior court judges touch your trial throughout the course of of when it's going on but I imagine if you feel like the 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 judge assigned to your case has a vendetta against you and that's ha you know a third uh, right. half of your caseload that that'd be a problem right yeah no that's exactly right that's exactly well, what it is well that's I, I had no clue uh, that, that those kind of things exist and I'm kind of glad to hear it it sounds yeah. like a good idea and a and a you know while there might not be any teeth behind some of it, at least bringing it to somebody's attention, maybe sometimes people don't understand. Yeah, I mean, even if you can get rid of, you know, if you can make 10 or 20% of complaints not become, not rise to the level of an ethical violation by intervening early, it's good. And, you know, then they, the State Bar and Bar Association has, like, they have PALS, which is for, you know, drugs and alcohol and, and that kind of substance abuse type dependencies where you can go and they'll help you out if you've got problems in that kind of regard. Uh, we've got Bar Cares here in this county, which is, if you feel part of what the the reason the Commission for Professionalism was started was because they did a mental health study of lawyers and like 60 percent of lawyers were like hated their job. And I can't remember what, what the, just the stress of it all. And they started it to do to give you vacations and then also um, um, to give you the opportunity to, to you know, try to make yeah, things I think it's what better. lawyers and dentists maybe yeah. that hate their jobs the most. Yeah. And I I've always know. thought being a dentist would be great. 
but I don't know. <laughs> you ever seen that movie? No, I think that's a it's a series. There's like five of them. It's it's, it. it's it's scary. It's scary stuff. It's about yeah. a, a killer dentist. And, yeah. you know, it's kind of a all my a friends. Go ahead. Which is a vulnerable position. You're knocked out, and somebody's got a drill in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. All my friends who are dentists, I don't know any of them that work on Fridays. That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, that's cool. That's uh, interesting to know. Um, what are you hearing in terms of of how the the bar and in particular what I'm interested in is jury trials how that's going to be affected um, by kind of the, the the pandemic and the the recent orders that have kind of kept pushing things back yeah uh, I've heard all kinds of different things um, with regard to jury trials I think there everything's still on the on, on open and and available um, I've heard uh, that they're going to start jury trials in August but then I heard it's only going to be criminal jury trials and they're going to be short they're not going to do anything long so like if there's if you've got let's let's do civil you got a three-week long medical malpractice case i don't think those cases are going to get tried maybe not even this year um and there's some talk that we might not have any civil jury trials this year i've heard some talk that maybe october uh, but when when the chief justice said august um that's when things are supposed to start jury trials again, but I think that's going to be very limited and low key and and all kinds of things. Like think about handing out exhibits. Yeah. If you want to hand out exhibits and each juror has got to handle the exhibits, how do you do something like that? Um, So the criminal stuff I think is going to take priority. The civil stuff is going to get kicked down. The more complicated civil stuff I think is going to take a while. There's been some discussion about changing jury trials from 12 jurors to six jurors, but everyone would obviously have to consent to that. Um, yeah, and that's kind of what I was saying in a lot of these situations. I've, I've seen it where um, judges have asked would, if, if we'd be interested in having a bench trial. Yeah. And it's kind of rare for everybody to want to be on that same page shifting gears. I mean, there's been times in advance where I've seen where I've agreed with opposing counsel to do a bench trial. But usually when you're this far along and everybody's requested one, at least one party wants to wants to uh, keep the jury. Yeah. And uh, so it sounds like most of the kind of the workarounds would require everybody agreeing or consenting yeah no i think it's it's similar to you know um uh, i've done actually a bunch of in-person depositions um not on video and i've done some in-person mediations and then some webex and zoom and all that different sort of thing um i haven't had a hearing in the courtroom yet um in front of a judge are they doing those now or is is that all webex Uh, they're doing them um uh there was a calendar call trying to remember where it was there was a calendar call a week ago. Um, I want to say maybe Brunswick County, but don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, I know I have motions calendar for August 1st in Onslow County, and Judge Quinn is going to be in the courtroom on August 1st, is what Brittany Odom, the TCA, says. Um, so they're starting. Um, now, is it your choice if you, if somebody, you know, let's say you've got a motion calendared? and the other attorney doesn't feel comfortable is is that attorney able to say look steve i'd, I'd rather just do this uh, by webex at home or is it no you, you've got to be there before judge quinn uh, that issue came up with um with the trial court administrator and she told me that everyone has to consent if you're going to do video i got you everybody so if the one lawyer says no i want to do it in person then the other lawyer has to show or send somebody to it as of i think that's the august the july 31 deadline um, is the latest because you know she kicked uh, Ch- Chief Justice Beasley kicked everything statute of limitations and everything to July 31st gotcha um, and what I've seen is you know like in, in 
when I've been to, I went to the new federal court that I guess they're running off of 17th Street, mm-hmm. and they appear to be doing business as normal, at least on the, the criminal matters. Um, but then I went, I uh, helped a, a buddy out with a traffic ticket a couple of days ago, and they had, you know, they didn't have any officers there. They kind of had the big glass protective shield, um, you know, for, for, to protect the judge behind the bench. And um, but besides that, it was it was kind of like a. You know, they had a place where you could submit your order under the under the protective window, and yep. it seemed to be fairly normal, other than kind of the the shields and whatnot. Yeah, I, you know, even during the height of the concerns when everybody was really sheltering in place in in April, um, I was going down to the courthouse, and the clerks were all in there, and I and um, they were filing stuff, and and um, I got a couple orders signed by judges and got those filed, and. Um, um, not necessarily by consent they were more like time oriented type things where the other side had something they had to do within 14 weeks and they didn't do it so the judge signed the order how do you think it's going to impact like how do you think they're going to handle the priority of cases once um hopefully when things get back to normal where like you know for example let's say i had a trial scheduled for april 1st right and then we're back to business beginning of next year yep does that mean my my trial that was scheduled for april is that going to be um first on deck or would it be the guy that's that's had been scheduled for the first of january the whole time yeah i think that's going to get super complicated because i think the first thing they're going to inquire into is how long is your trial and i would say if you're looking at a one two three day trial you're going to move up the food chain (laughs) in those cases would be my guess because they're going to try those first um um and so I would say some of those kinds of cases, they're, they're obviously going to go by how old your case is again. But if you've got a complicated case that's old, I would imagine you're going to get moved down the calendar and they're going to move somebody up who's got something small. But, you know, frankly speaking, you go to calendar call anymore and there's just not that many cases for trial. It used well, to be back 25 years ago, you know, everything was marked for trial. It seemed like and got tried, but it just doesn't happen like that much anymore. Yeah, and, you know, and a couple of weeks ago, I was I was talking with uh, Jeremy Wilson about this, um, that it, in, in my experience, what I'm seeing is it tends to be the smaller stuff that's being tried. Yep. Um, you know, I guess there's a lot of times the expense of trying a complicated matter is too great, or, or a lot of times there's too much to lose. You know, yep. they're, if it doesn't go your way, it's not, it's not like a... a the smaller cases where you can live with the results. Um, so is that is that kind of what you're seeing? or Yes, absolutely. Um, um, the bigger stuff doesn't seem to be getting tried as much, unless, I mean, like the MedMal stuff still seems to be fairly steadily moving along, and those big, those big cases are getting tried. Um, but um, a lot of the smaller civil stuff, uh, that gets tried a fair amount because, like you said, there's not much to lose by either side. Either the plaintiff's kind of rolling the dice because they don't think they've got a great case, but they'll give it a try, or the defense is like, well, I don't really have that much to lose. Um, whereas, you know, if you've got a big damages case that's got a strong liability component to it, you know, then there's a lot to risk for both sides. I mean, the plaintiff could walk away with nothing or the defense could get hit for a million bucks, um, and those cases tend to settle. Yeah. Especially uh, mediation, I think, has driven all of that. As mediation was mandated in, what, 95, 96, I think? I'd been practicing for two or three years when Superior Court mandated mediation came about. What, what, what was it like prior to mediation? <laughs> it, was, it was a lot more like the Wild West. Uh, yeah. You would, uh, you know, there'd be, there were some lawyers that didn't, like, really prepare, but their, what they were really great at was on their feet in the courtroom just without a whole lot of preparation. You know, back in the day, we didn't have to do all this discovery that we have to do now. So you kind of know what each side is going to say before you really get to trial anymore. 
And now with mediation, everybody almost kind of gets ready, not not for a trial, but you get ready with your whole case because your client's sitting there with you and you need to present, you know, your best day in court or what you think your best day in court is. And the other side's going to present their best day and everybody's got to sit there and listen. That used to happen on Monday mornings in yeah. front of the judge. And the judge was the mediator. And by that time, everybody spent all weekend getting ready. Everybody's locked and loaded. You just go try the case about half the time. So I, I took the, the South Carolina bar. And in order to, um, you can have your license, um, but in order to participate in court or to take depositions or to do, um, or to do litigation or criminal work, you have to have your, um, your trial observation certificate. Yep. And so what you had to do, uh, at, at one point you had to watch 10 trials. And uh, by the time I, I uh, got my license, it was it was four trials, and it was different things. Like you you got uh, um, you could do one family court matter, you could do an admin matter, a criminal, and a civil. Sure. And um, makes sense. Yeah. And, and they, at that time, that was probably early two thousand eight, um, or later two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when I was trying to get those cert- certificates done, and. Horry County and, and a lot of parts in South Carolina were in the earlier stages of ADR and implementing mandatory mediation. And it was kind of what you, it was very frustrating for me because I would call the attorneys and explain to them what I was doing and ask them if they thought, because there were requirements, you had to have two witnesses on each side and you had to have certain <laughs> things. And so I'd say, hey, does this trial qualify? I'd say, yeah. And uh, so the first one I went to, I, I came in, uh, the judge brought everybody into the room. I was there for like two or three hours, come out and they announced it settled. Yeah. It's like, well, this is a waste of time. And, and so I was like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out next time. So then the next time I had an opportunity, I think I'd drive down to Georgetown or somewhere like that. Yeah. Talk, call all the lawyers in advance. Like, no way. This is this is 100% going to trial. We're, we're so far apart. We, right. we'll, we'll never agree. We'll never settle this. Sure. Same thing happened. Yep. Pull, the judge pulls them in there. They were there for, you know, several hours. And then I'm driving back with, you know, empty handed again. Yep. And from what I had been told from a lot of the lawyers that were here in, in North Carolina prior to man, mediation being mandatory, that was the way things worked was it was like a lot of times the judge would lean on the parties or, or kind of give his or her take um, pre-trial. And then that would kind of motivate the parties to settle. Yeah. And, you know, usually there's like, in almost every jury trial, there's a two or three key evidentiary issues that are in the judge's discretion, right? Yep. So he'll take you in the back room and sit down and start talking to everybody about it and start kicking around the case, and he gets a bead real fast on what those key evidentiary issues are. And if he thinks one side's being unreasonable or the other, he might – I'm not saying they do this. Yeah. No, <laughs> but, I but, I mean, yeah. I've had those conversations where all of a sudden, you know, he's not, he's not looking good. Your, your evidentiary issue isn't looking good anymore, and you need to go back and call it, talk to your client and say, hey – you know, I'm getting a read from the judge that it might go down like this, and that was one of the things we were worried about. And you know, yeah. and they've got a lot of power in that in that regard to try to get a case resolved. And that's the way it used to all get done like that. But now, you know, usually in a mediation, everybody sits down and everybody gets prepared because um, you know, I mean, we're lawyers; you don't do anything without a deadline. Um, and uh, and so those deadlines come up, and you get ready, and everybody kind of figures out where they are and things tend to get resolved. One of the interesting things, you know, and that's, that's another thing I've been doing recently is I just kind of started mediating cases. And, you know, for people of kind of my age and my generation, it's almost like the mediation is the trial. Yep. And, you know, we still, there's still, we, we still try them and, you know, I'll, I'll probably do maybe one a year, maybe uh, one, that's probably what I've been averaging recently. So I, I still get in there, but it, it but it is fairly rare. Yep. Um, so it's kind of turned into like the mediation is the trial. Yeah. And so you'll see people like, you know, just load 
loaded up for for you know they're gonna they're gonna put on their case you know sometimes in the opening or sometimes they're gonna put it on in their initial meeting with the mediator yeah and you know they're wanting to um, to kind of disprove everything and I think there's there's certainly a, a time and place for that but uh, when I'm mediating I try to kind of I want to get a handle on all the details so right. I can kind of go through it but you know I kind of don't view it as as my job to let's let's resolve this factual dispute and determine right. you know who because that's yeah. It's just you can't you can't do that in, in that setting, and I don't think that's the best way to reach a resolution. But it is kind of that that's at least when I was younger, I think that was kind of the, the mentality of mediation. Like I'm going to go in there and and set the record straight, and then I'm going to tilt the mediator to my side, then he's going to lean on them and and beat them down and make them accept my my settlement terms. Yeah, no, I, and I think um, uh, you just did a mediation for me and did a great job um, in that case, um, um, and. Uh, you know, I, that, that's part of the experience of going through and doing the litigation and having the trial experience so you know where the leverage points are when you go in the room with the other side, whether, you know, whether, look, you're going to spend this much on an attorney <laughs> just to get to the finish line. Yeah. You know, sometimes kicking in a little extra cash just because you're going to end up spending it regardless, whether you win or lose, you're going to spend those attorney's fees is a big pressure point in a lot of those cases that get settled and resolved. Yeah, and that's kind of disappointing because it's, you know, you don't really that's not really something you talk about in law school is is well we're going to capitulate on an issue where we're in the right because it's too expensive to fight it out right you know it's kind of a you know it's 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 not it's it's i mean it's a reality of what happens a lot of times but it's certainly not um inspiring when you're oh, no. when you're putting in all that time reading law and when you're like well it doesn't really matter you're just gonna you might be you might know the law but you're you're probably gonna end up um at least making concessions because of the incredible expense involved. Yeah, no, I half the time, uh, you know, I'll have somebody come in in a, in a construction case or a real estate litigation. Somebody's home is having troubles and they want to sue the person who sold them the home or, or, uh, and you sit there and you feel like partially like a financial advisor. Cause you're like, look, we're going to have to hire experts. Uh, we're gonna have to take depositions of probably maybe a dozen people, um, just to get you to a trial. You know, it might be $25,000, might be $50,000 and maybe you're fighting over a hundred thousand um, dollars. and you got to ask yourself, is it worth going through all of that? Um, you know, and I, that's a big part of it. Unfortunately, it's a good system, but it's an expensive system. Sure. Yeah. I think that's what I'd like to do in a second career is be a, a expert witness. Yeah. Seems like a pretty good gig, you know. Just and, and some of them I've seen, and, and I mean, you know, a lot of the times these guys are a lot smarter, you know, than than I am, and and they've got a lot of technical knowledge, and they know, um, you know, they've got their fields, and and but you know, it's amazing to see how how kind of wide some of these guys spread themselves as far as how many things you can be an expert about. And I guess it's, you know, when that's what you do for a living, you, you can't, it's hard to be a one trick pony, so to speak. I know for gotta, sure. And, and, you know, you gotta be able to being an expert is one world, but handling a, a, a jury trial and getting attacked by, you know, two, three lawyers sometimes on your opinions. Um, that is not a pleasant experience. And that's why a lot of people, uh, I mean, I've had cases before where, where, uh, where I'd hired a doctor to give opinions and he just was brutalized by the other side. Um, they didn't do anything improper, just, you know, they went after him um, on, on a variety of different ways. I mean, you know, like when you attack an expert, you got, we always laugh, it's a three-legged stool your expert yeah. stands on. Uh, he's got his credentials, he's got his facts that he relies on, and he's got his opinions and whether they meet the standard threshold of, of peer review. And if you can knock one of those legs over, that expert's going to fall and his opinion won't stand. Um, so if they go after their credentials, you know, now that's kind of a personal thing yeah. um, where, they, where they tend to get a little upset. And, uh, 
and I, you know, I've had them where they go, look, I, you don't have to pay me. Just don't make me go to trial. Um, um, <laughs> cause it's been such an unpleasant yeah. experience, but you know, it's a, it's a special lawyer that can do that to an expert. One thing, you know, we were kind of talking about the expense and, and kind of a lot of times you get this war of wills where it might be where, where the parties involved spend a lot more money than, than really even at stake. Um, but you don't want to be the one that, that kind of backs down, so to speak, or right. that, or that, or that, uh, takes a loss on the case because of, um, um, because of that concern. So a lot of times I'll, the, my thing that I'm sure every lawyer's heard it a bunch is what well, it's, it's about the principle of the matter. Right. And I don't know, like, is that, is that something you've heard a lot? It's the principle of the matter. Oh yeah. We, you know, I typically get paid by the hour. Uh, so, um, there's nothing a lawyer who gets paid by the hour likes to hear more than this is a matter of principle. Yeah. Cause now you're taking my financial advice and throwing it out the door and you know, it's a, and it's expensive. You want a pit bull, pit bulls are expensive. Yeah. So <laughs> what would you say the, the, when, when I've always, I've always hold when somebody says it's, it's about the prince, it's the principle of the matter. That means it's about the money. Yeah. So I don't know, like, would you say how many times people have really meant it when they said, no, it's about the principle of the matter. I, they'll usually start off and then as the bills roll in yeah. and they start to see how much they're spending on it. Usually you get into the 15 to 20 to $25,000 threshold. And all of a sudden they're like, are we, how far away are we from trial? And you're like, well, it's six months. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and, uh, that's when all of a sudden the matter of principle starts to deflate a little bit. Um, um, and you know, and I, unfortunately sometimes that's what it takes for some folks. You can't explain that to them in the beginning. Um, and, and then of course they get mad at the system because, it's, you know, because they're frustrated because they didn't get what they wanted, um, which I totally understand. Uh, but you hear people, I guess, the, the saying that you can you can sue a ham sandwich or something like that. Sure. And, and that's one of the things that I've seen that really upsets people is when they're saying, you know, why am I even in this? It's kind of why, why, why did why haven't you got it dismissed by now? Or this is frivolous. This is this is terrible. And there are things in place to deal with that. But um, but, you know, really, it's it's kind of a you're kind of along for the ride for yep. the most part. No, for sure. And, you know, some of the things North Carolina's tried to do, like, as you know, when you file in Superior Court, you just have to put in excess of $25,000. And yeah. the reason we do that is because in California, you know, I remember there was a story about a, uh, uh, a guy who sued his uh, laundry guy, his, his uh, what do you call Dry cleaner. Yeah. And he sued him for like $10 million because he burned up a pair of his pants. Or I it, forget wasn't that what, guy judged that did that? <laughs> it was something crazy. Yeah. But, you know, we do in excess of $25,000 because, you know, the newspaper is usually going down there and looking at the new filings to see if there's any interesting cases or anything that's strange um, in there. And, you know, and then we do the Rule 8 request mm -hmm. separately where you find out what the number is and you don't file that until 30 days before trial. And we do that consciously to try to avoid um, some of those kinds of improprieties um, where people are just going to sue somebody to put their name in the paper. Yeah. But, you know, it's hard. You know, there is a there's clearly a predisposition in civil court that's that's system wide that they want a jury trial to resolve the issues. It's very, you know, in my experience, you can get summary judgment, but you better have everything up lined up just perfectly. Yeah. Um, and you better be able to explain it fairly quickly to get a judge to agree. This is something that's interested me, and, and I've kind of thought about it from time to time, but have you ever sued anybody? I'm talking about in your personal capacity. No. 
you know, because neither have I, yep. and I don't think I want my business out there in the court. Right. Um, but, you know, I think there might be a situation, you know, where I was trying to decide in my, you know, my own head, like, what would be my threshold? What would it take in order for me to sue somebody? Right. You know, and, and especially like, you know, I'd hate to do it where I work and with all my colleagues and whatnot. But at the same time, I'm not going to let, um, you know, just something that needs to be addressed go. Do yeah. you have like a personal threshold of when uh-huh. it's like, you know, this is all right, I'm going for it. I'm. <laughs> I was, well, maybe I think of it was the judge that that sued the the, yeah, yeah. the, the laundromat for millions of dollars for messing up his, his suit. Or, I don't know. I I, uh, I I don't have a super bad temper until he kicks in, and then my temper is I go from zero to hundred pretty fast. Um, but uh, but no, I think I generally try to avoid going in a courtroom um, for uh, for all costs, um, and would prefer not to sue anybody unless you had to. Would you go pro se if you were suing somebody oh, on your behalf? Or no, what, you, what is or, it? Abraham Lincoln says the lawyer represents himself as a fool for a client. Yeah, on that his famous right. quote. Yeah, I, that is. I've had that situation happen before, yeah. where a lawyer's represented himself, and that that is a very true yeah. <laughs> statement. Well, one of the things that I had um, was a, a disbarred lawyer that uh, that was representing himself in a case, and that was I've that was it. one of the few times where I've videotaped a deposition, yep. um, you know, where I was not in anticipation of playing it like an expert or something like that, but I just wanted to, um, if the guy started acting up, because he had been kind of crazy within some of the, the yep. correspondence I've had with him, like, I want to have these pictures because I'm probably going to move for summary judgment where I can play a clip for the judge. And sure. Say, hopefully the judge say, I don't want to deal with this guy and, and kind of drive home the point of what what he said. No, that's absolutely smart as it can be. I, you know, the videotaped deposition um, is the way to go if you can afford to do it. And because, you know, and you know, just as well as I do, you read somebody's typewritten testimony and you don't get the inflections or they're raising their voice or whether they said it fast or whether they said it slow yeah. or whether they stumbled through it or whether there was like a 30 second pause in between a key question. Um, and the videotape sometimes is just, you know. Well, I've had that, like I'm, I'm summarizing a deposition for the client, kind of trying to explain the way it went. They say, oh, well, let me see that. And I'll show it to them, like, look, this guy's an asshole. I'm telling you, they're not going to like him. You right. Know, just, just, and then they'll look at it like, well, that seems perfectly reasonable with yeah. what that guy said. And it's like, well. You know, I don't know. You'd have been there, I guess. Yeah, no, you know, you, you can't see the arrogance yeah. unless you're there at watching the arrogance happen. Um, um, and, that, you know, juries don't like stuff like that. I mean, no. juries especially don't like people that lie to them. Um, if you can catch anybody in a lie on the opposite side of your case, you gotta, you've gone a long way to winning your case. Yeah, and, and it's... One of the other reasons, and I've kind of, I've had a, a goal, I guess, of, of I always want to be in one of these um, leaked deposition videos where there's, you know, have you seen one of those? My favorite is the Texas deposition one. Have you ever watched yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, And I forgot the guy's name. It was Willie Nelson's old attorney. Yeah, um, yeah. I can't remember either, but yeah, I've seen I was those. thinking there was a potential for, for something like that happening. But, yeah. but I typically don't um, video, you know, maybe I should. Like, you know, I've seen some attorneys that come by and just set up their tripod yep. and hit the record button. I think that Dan does that, doesn't he? Sometimes? He does, yeah. yeah. And so do, do you have to have a videographer to do your depositions? or can you? Unless you can get the other side to consent, it's not going to be admissible in a courtroom. Yeah. Um, so you got to get the other side to consent. So Dan usually gets them to consent and tells them, I'll give you a copy of the video. Um, um, but, uh, but yeah, you got to get consent on that unless you get a videographer. Yeah. Well, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dan does that a fair amount. Um, yeah, you know, I, like I can think of a time, it was a long time ago when I was younger and feistier. Um, but uh, I had a lawyer ask me to step outside one time, really, in the middle of a deposition because 
he I, I, he said something and then he uh and then he objected to my question i was like what's the basis of your objection and it was a bs basis and, yeah and then i said something else and then he called me an asshole under his breath on the side and i kind of went and, I, and instead of letting it lie, I looked at the court reporter and I said, Madam Court reporter, did you note that defense, plaintiff's counsel just referred to defense counsel as an yeah. asshole? And he exploded. He <laughs> flipped his books all over and asked me to step outside and fight me. And I was like. <laughs> if he'd have taken him up on it, do you think he was he was serious? I don't know. I think he might have been. He's yeah. kind of a crazy guy. Yeah. Um, and and, and uh, I, the, there was another lawyer in the room. And I remember looking at him. And go, I go. Did did he just call me an asshole? Yeah. <laughs> he goes, uh, I don't know. I didn't hear anything. And uh, and then I said something on the record that uh, you know, defense counsel believes plaintiff's counsel means to do him harm in the parking lot. <laughs> and uh, it was funny. And I was a young lawyer. And yeah. what was funny is at the end of that deposition, he took a break and left his client in the room. I talked to her for a minute, and then at the end of that deposition, he offered me a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess he's impressed. Did, did, yeah. what, did, what did his client, did you get the sense that she was impressed with what he did? Or no. that she was embarrassed? She or, was embarrassed. She was yeah. almost going to cry. And she was just like, she, you know, I mean, it's already intense. I was taking her deposition, yeah. so it's already intense for her. I mean, going through a deposition is no pleasure thing for anybody. Um, and uh, um, so she was already kind of nervous, and then that happened, and she's like, what in the world's going on? She had little tears, kind of, it was, it was terrible. And it's interesting to see what people like. You know, we are kind of talking about professionalism earlier. Yeah. And, you know, I've known of attorneys that'll just blow you out on emails, mm -hmm. um, I guess because of the, the BCC button. Yep. You know, and then just, just kind of, I mean, crazy emails that yep. I've gotten from attorneys, just... Uh, you know, and then you see them in person, and they're the most pleasant people, yep. and you get along with them fine. And I guess, and I just presumed it's because you know the clients like, wow, this my lawyer is really owning this guy. You know, he, you know yeah. what, you know what's he going to do? And I guess you, you and you only see that one perspective because if you're not, you, you know, you're not going to reply all, you're not going to catch the response. So it's a way of kind of framing the issue, I guess, for your client. Although I would say in the long run, um, they'll find that that's not how it works in in court or, or when things really matter. Right. Yeah, I, it, that is not my style of way of doing things. I, I, there are a lot of lawyers that is their style, and there are a lot of clients that that's what they want. Um, you know, some you know, some folks are just angry and upset, and a lot of times they're in the courtroom like for vengeance, um, and they want their lawyer to just be the the wrath of God on everybody. Um, and uh, that's not my style. That's not the way I'm ever going to be. I, I always feel like um, killing folks with kindness is the best way to draw information out of people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, but you know, some folks, that's what they want and I get it. And that's interesting from like, as you primarily do d defense work, yep. um, you know, I guess that's maybe more the stereotypes is that the defense is kind of the bulldog or the, or the go after them, but kind of, and, and my, what I've seen is that it's kind of the opposite. A lot of the defense attorneys I've worked with tend to have the kill them with kindness and, yep. and you, you track more with honey type attitude sure. than it's the plaintiff's lawyers. Maybe that'll be the, the more aggressive sometimes. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, uh, I, I'm lucky. Um, I had good mentors coming up, which I think is probably the most important thing as a young lawyer that you can do is just get lucky and be with the right people. I had John Drew Warlick up in Jacksonville was my boss for two years and just a gem of a guy, somebody I still talk to all the time. And then Don Ennis has been my partner for 25 years, and there's not a better gentleman uh, lawyer in this entire county uh just a fantastic trial lawyer um he's like a big brother to me i, I don't really do much of anything without talking to don about it first yeah. but uh i've been lucky in that regard and that's kind of their style they're they're people you can if they tell you something um 
you can believe it. They're not going to change unless I mean, sometimes you have to change because your clients told you, instructed you <laughs> to yeah. do something differently. But but men of their words, uh, you know, aggressive are going to try to beat you to pieces. That's what I the part I like about my job is it's like playing sports a little bit, doing the litigation. Yeah. It's me against somebody else. Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. And that's kind of what drives me. I'm not like a distance runner. Uh, I'm not self-motivated a lot. Yeah. But if somebody else is trying to knock my block off, I'm gonna go as hard as I can to knock their block off. Well, it's just the worst feeling. You know, there's there's the your fiduciary obligation, you know, to your client, and then you, I've heard some lawyers have say that you've got that's kind of like the eighty percent rule. Yep. Is that eighty percent of the cases um, are gonna the same thing's gonna happen no matter who's the attorney, right. and and ten percent somebody's going to win because the attorney did a fantastic job right. and the other 10% somebody's going to lose because the attorney just did a shitty job. Right. And so, you know, I, I, you'd hate, that's, I kind of agree with that. I mean, you know, the percentages, who knows, right. But you know, you hate to be in that lower 10% right. where you're like the only reason that, or the primary reason why this happened was because I was, you know, I didn't get it done. Right. And that certainly is a motivating factor. And that's a nice part on the defense side of things. I get paid by the hour. So the more I work, the more I get paid. The more prepared I am, the more I get paid. Yeah. And sometimes on the other side, when you're getting paid like a percentage of the recovery, um, you know, the more work you do, unless you bring something special to the table to add value to the case, actually like less you're making per hour. Um, and I think that's always the, that's the difficulty in the, on the plaintiff side of things is trying to figure out how much is too much, you know, and and um, and it, it makes it tough sometimes. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, there's two components of it. You, if you spend all your time on a contingency case and there's really not that big of a recovery down the road, you right. know, you're, you're kind of, you're cheating yourself in that situation, or maybe not cheating yourself, but you're not gonna make any money. Right. And the second thing is if you're going around taking a bunch of depositions and hiring every de- expert in the case that isn't worth any money, then you know, typically that's, costs are coming out of the client's right. pocket, then you're going to have a, another conversation when all that's done. Yeah. Again, you're a financial planner. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully you're having those conversations with your client on the front end oh, yeah. so you don't lose credibility on the back end um, and they start thinking, well, you just don't want to try this case. You don't want to do any more work. One of the things that's interesting in the in the kind of the plaintiff's community or the or representing plaintiffs is they're, they've always, everybody's always got a cousin or a brother or a relative that that uh, had a similar situation and, and won a million dollars right. or something. And it's always, it's kind of like it's a straw man argument where right. it's like, it's, I mean, it probably never happened, but even if it did, it's probably apples and oranges. Yep. But then you're always, you know, how much time do you want to spend? And, you know, you can get sideways with your client kind of getting into that. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I, that's kind of the nice one. I've been doing this now 27 years. I've, I've you know seen a lot of things and done a lot of things. And when I get those stories, I'll kind of, <laughs> kind of laugh yeah. and go, well, I, I never heard of that before. Um, maybe you should go to that lawyer. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, no, that's exactly, that's kind of what I've told people yeah, that's right. verbatim in the past. <laughs> well, and I know you said you were saying that you primarily practice in Southeastern North Carolina. How would you compare kind of the, your typical jury pool to in Southeastern North Carolina versus what you've dealt with in other jurisdictions? Yeah, you know, Southeastern North Carolina has just so dramatically changed over the last 25 years. Um, when I, my very first jury trial I ever tried in 1994 was down in Brunswick County, um, where they, they, Andy Anderson used to call me his pit lawyer, because uh-huh. you, you literally tried the case, it was in a pit. I don't know if you ever saw that now, courthouse. Was this Columbus County, you said? Uh, Brunswick County. Okay. Before no. they built the new big courthouse, they used to have 
like you would walk down into this pit and you were like your head was at the top of the jury box mm-hmm. and you were down low and they're all sitting up there and and he and, and you used to sit right next to the plaintiff's lawyer like your desk was like curved around this circle around the pit mm-hmm. and uh and he used to joke around call me the pit lawyer all the time but uh um, but brunswick county you know you would usually have you know like a third generation yam farmer from ash north carolina and and then you'd have some guy from leland who might work in wilmington um might have a shrimper from over in calabash and then you might have a guy from figure or not figure eight baldhead island on there you know wearing a sweater vest or something and and you're trying to figure out how those guys are going to all agree on something or ladies i don't mean to make it all guys um but now brunswick county there's so many retirees that have moved into Brunswick County. You know, you've got you've got a lot of folks that are from New York, that are from Wisconsin, that are from Chicago, that are going to be on your jury pools, and that you've got to kind of keep apprised of all those kinds of things. Um, and they're generally a little more conservative, I find, in Brunswick County. Um, older folks, retired folks, a lot of Fox News watching folks. Well, and that's what I was going to ask is if is if the the retirees have brought their kind of the northern sensibilities with them as far as how they view things or whether when they've reached the retirement stage of their life, they've life they become more conservative or kind of I, that's I think they become naturally more conservative. Those retirees do. The one thing the caveat that I would say is where you had a uh, a shrimper, say, who might be making $22,000 a year shrimping or 25 or something like that. Now you might have a guy who's a retiree with a couple million dollars sitting in his 401k um, who might think in different numbers than, say, that guy down in Calabash did back in the day. So that'd be the one change is the number part is a little bit different as to what their expectations are and what their thoughts are on numbers. Um, you know, then you got Onslow County, which has got the military base, which is going to be relatively conservative as two. Duplin County has always traditionally been pretty conservative. New Hanover County is fairly conservative. Um, you get out Columbus County, you start to get where Whiteville is, you start to get a little more, um, you know, open, I guess. Um, and then Robinson County um, is generally considered to be a, a, a larger damages county. They've got they've they've had some unusual verdicts come out of that county. So I wasn't there for the pit. They they'd opened the new courthouse before I started going down to Brunswick County. Yeah. But I do remember the first time I went to Columbus County, and this kind of uh, I remember like a circular walkway like before the main courtroom and yep. signs on the door no smoking in the courtroom yep. and kind of the the nicotine nicotine stained wall like the, the yellow ceilings oh, everywhere yeah. in there and no. i was like well, this is interesting oh yeah it, absolutely i mean you'd go over there and the judges would be smoking all inside the the judges chambers and there were ashtrays all over even i mean one, I'm, i bet you'd still find a couple ashtrays over there in columbus yeah. county and whitewell um but uh um, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it was different times. And, you know, Columbus has seen a lot of change. I mean, with, with every, all the jobs moving to Mexico, all their textile mills yeah. closed. Those were all open when I first started practicing. Columbus County at one point, wasn't it the, the haven for, uh, for fire cases? Yeah. I think at one time, I remember yeah. hearing a story where there was like a moratorium on fire policies in Columbus County. Down by Tabor City. And a matter of fact, when I, my first day here in Wilmington, I went with one of my bosses to go look at a house that had burned down in Tabor City. And he walks me in and he says, did this house burn down uh, naturally or did somebody set it? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I'm walking yeah. around. I've never, been, I've never even been in a house that's been burned down before. 
And we start walking around. He goes, well, tell me if there's any clues. So we go, he takes me in the kitchen. He starts opening up the drawers in the kitchen. And there's no silverware in any of the drawers. Yeah, okay, yeah. And he, and he goes, he goes, and I go, he goes, where did the silverware go? And I go, oh, it must have burned up or whatever, because I'm just a knucklehead who doesn't yeah. think about the burning point of metal. Yeah. Um, and then little things like, you know, if there's a TV sitting there in their living room, there would be some wiring and a picture tube. The plastic might melt and burn out, but there would yeah. still be some evidence. There was a, so like TVs were missing, no couch springs, bed springs. And we end up figuring out that they had moved all their furniture out to a pack house on the back of the property. <laughs> a couple and they, days before. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and they lit the they lit the place on fire themselves. And that was a big problem back in Columbus County. It's not, yeah. I, don't, I haven't seen any cases like that there in a really, really long time. But 25 years ago, that was something that happened a lot. Yeah, those those I think would would be fun. I've I've had a couple fire origin cases where we're trying to figure out was it, it was they were negligence cases. We're trying to figure out who to pin the blame uh, against. Yeah. But haven't done one of those first party uh, fires where we're trying to figure out if it's a if it's an insurance fraud or if it's a yeah. or if it's a uh, an accident. Yeah, no, we uh, I tried a fire cause and origin case up in Halifax County twenty twenty two years ago maybe, and uh, we tried it for two weeks, and it was all the, you know it's almost kind of like it's pretty sophisticated science, but they look for the burn patterns. They look for where the most intensity of the fire is, and then they kind of backtrack. And it's easy to find people that will disagree, but I ended up hiring a metallurgist in that case, and we were able to find out that it was an electrical duplex outlet that caused the fire um, because of a, a blob of copper at the end of a, of a, of a wire. So um, they're really they're fun cases, they're, and it's a lot different than, than anything else you'll try. What would you say is the most common, like the mean of the cases you do? What's kind of the, your, your, your average run-of-the-mill? Probably it's still car stuff. Car wreck stuff is probably the most common stuff. Um, and then after that, I got a lot of animal cases with dogs. Dog I got a monkey case. <laughs> a monkey case. <laughs> I had a monkey that attacked a lady that a guy owned down in Brunswick County. And, uh, and I just got that resolved last year. It was a Japanese snow macaque that got out of its cage. See, I feel like I could deal with a dog. I mean, I guess some dogs are more dangerous than others, but that would freak me out if a, if a monkey came after me. No, I, it's, you know, something with hands and a face. Yeah, like it's it's like, on top of you, man. A, a worthy opponent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably very fast. Yeah, it was a 50-pound Japanese snow macaque. And I don't mean to laugh at, at it. was very traumatic yeah, what happened yeah, to sure. this woman. Um, but uh, but he had escaped his confines. And the thing I learned that was amazing to me is it's not illegal to own one. Yeah. Um, and there's almost very little law, unless your local count, county or your local town has law on it, there's no law. You could have a lion if you want yeah. to. I wouldn't um, wish that on my, my worst enemy, yeah. uh, at least the monkey attack. But yeah. I, I had I did watch the uh, the Tiger King. Yeah, yeah. And so I was once I realized you get a tiger for two or three grand, I was kind of thinking, well, this might be a good, good idea. Yeah. But, uh, it's but I, not. Yeah, <laughs> no. Well, okay, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather I'd take my chances against the monkey over a tiger for sure. I but, think so. Although, man, my, monkeys, oof, it was scary. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, some of that kind of stuff, a, a fair amount of construction, litigation, real estate stuff where folks are arguing about, usually it's in purchase of homes. Um, cow cases, cows up in Duplin County, cows get out of their confines all oh, yeah. the time and get hit, and there's all sorts of lawsuits over that. And um, My cousin forgot to close the, the gate at my at my grandparents' farm one time. Yeah. I've, I've certainly seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yep. the cows along the highway on the way home. Yep. I've got, I just got um, retained in the, uh, there was a Legionnaires outbreak out in um, Henderson County uh, where uh, 140 people were exposed roughly to Legionnaires. And uh, I've gotten brought in as counsel out there to represent a hot tub company that was 
that was, I guess, using their hot tubs at the time, and that's allegedly how the folks were exposed. Four or five people died. Right now, I think there's 40 lawsuits filed out that way right now. But I don't get out. I, usually, my little corner is southeastern North Carolina. I don't get out across the state a whole lot. Have you seen a decrease in the volume of kind of your standard car wrecks since the, the tort reform? I have not. Nope. Just as many. I, th- I think um, um, I think there's just as many. Um um, I, and really, it's like we've taken a time warp back to like 1993, because um, when I started practicing, you would go try one of those cases, and you would have about what the, the bills were actually what they said the bills were, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I, <laughs> and then as insurance started having their problems, and they started billing like three times what they had been billing before for a procedure, because they're only getting paid 50%, yeah. um, you know, then things kind of got out of hand. So... So a lot of cases that would settle back in the day, because maybe there's $100,000 in medical bills. Now maybe there's, I mean, if it's Medicare, it could be $15,000 in medical bills. And that's what's going in to, to evidence. So that's a case that would not have gotten, even saw the light of a courtroom before. Um, so I don't see the, the downturn. I know some of the guys that were really heavy into that, that were making just phenomenal livings yeah. off of that have been upset about it because they can't quite get to that same level they were before. But there's a lot of young guys that would love those cases that are all coming through. So I think that's interesting as far as the evaluation of, of like what you're going to offer to settle a case or what you're going to ask for if you're, if you're the plaintiff. Because it, it seems like for as long as I've been doing this, it seems like the main driver of what's a case worth right. is the, the medical bills. Right. But I think in this kind of environment, what you see is 90% of the time um, – whoever was injured most likely had insurance, right. uh, health insurance to pay right. the bills, or if they're broke, it was most likely Medicaid. Right. You know, so it's, and I would presume that most people are aware of that. I've had a couple of those trials where, um, you know, the, the jurors can ask questions, they'll send a note back to the judge, and right. they like, hey, I just want to let you know, they wanted to know if, if, if the defendant, or if the, um, if the plaintiff had health insurance and stuff like that. So I guess there are situations where that is kind of where they don't know or, but I think they make assumptions based on, on those sort of things. Cause it's just kind of your average person in the community. I'm sure I would assume knows how that that dynamic works. Well, you know, typically you got 12 strangers sitting in a jury room and you're going to blackboard your numbers, right? So if you're the plaintiff's attorney, you're going to blackboard your numbers. Medical bills is easy. If you're if if I'm found at fault and you're not contributorily negligent, you get your medical bills. Mm-hmm. The law is very clear, um, assuming they're all approximately caused by the accident. Now, if I can go through and say, hey, that back surgery you had actually is because you hurt your back the year before, not because of this five mile an hour accident that happened out on the highway. Um, but but you're going to get your medical bills. Then they're going to put their lost wages in. Um, then they're going to factor in future lost wages or future medical bills if there is such a thing like that. Um, then you're going to get permanent injury, scarring, disfigurement, all that kind of stuff that they'll try to blackboard. And then you got pain and suffering, which is, you know, how do you, yeah. <laughs> how does that get how, figured out? How, um, how do you deal with that as a defense attorney? Do you concede that pain and suffering is something they're owed if they experienced, or do you just, or do you even tackle that issue? Yeah, I tackle that issue. We all, you know, we've got five lawyers in our firm who've been trying defense cases for God, Maynard and Don and Dan have been doing it 35 years each. Um, so yeah, I, you know we we attack. I know there's a lot of people that feel like if you've got a liability defense, you don't talk about damages. I, I almost always talk about damages. Um, I think you go ahead and buttress your liability arguments with the damages arguments and don't give up that ground. Um, 
So, you know, I mean, you go through a reasonableness type thing. You go through, look, it's easy to feel sympathy for somebody, uh, but you're not allowed yeah. to consider that. I mean, and that's what you agreed to when we picked you as a juror, that you weren't going to get caught up in the sympathy part of this thing. you got to look at the hard facts and how much is that person's pain and suffering work. And, you know, sometimes they'll make a per diem argument or, a, or a, you know, it's worth this much per year and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I... I I find those arguments a little disingenuous, but but I understand why you make them. You know, the plaintiffs, just like the defense attorney's job is to try to keep the judgment as low as possible, the plaintiffs yeah. is to keep it as big as possible. And they want to inflame and get the jury upset, and I'm always trying to gear it back the other way and keep them calm and say, hey, you know, look, let's really look at what this is. Well, to me, it always brings back to that the golden rule argument. And it's like, you know, because I think probably the most fair thing or the, or the way that kind of I would approach it if there were, if I was writing the laws, would be maybe well, what would from pain and suffering standpoint what would somebody have to pay me to go through that yeah you know it's kind of what is kind of what i think of yep but you know i guess that's your classic golden rule that's yeah. not the that's that's impermissible you can't make that argument right you can't so, make that argument but they're all doing that yeah. back in the jury room i think yeah. i mean there's always kind of a little bit of a joke like how much would i have to pay you to crack a two by four over your back yeah you know like i don't know you give me four thousand bucks i might let you crack a two by four over my back i don't know but i think what you said made a lot of sense about attacking it from a liability or a damages perspective or maybe not attacking but just getting into the damages if with if it's a liability case right because of what you said earlier with um juries don't like liars so right. if you can catch somebody embellishing just maybe a, a a component of their damages it doesn't even matter yeah you know a lot of times like lost wages or uh or, or trying to throw in an insignificant medical bill that doesn't yep. really matter in the long, but if you can catch somebody doing something like that. Yeah, or somebody, you know, like somebody says, no, I never had any back pain before this accident. And now I, I go get your prior medical history because in order for me to try to even evaluate your case, I got to know where you were medically before yep. you ever got in this accident. Um, um, so, you know, you sit there and you get their prior medical history. They all say, no, I've never, not they all, but oftentimes, um, you know, my back, my back doesn't hurt. I never had any problems with my back. And here I find oxycodone prescriptions that you've been taking for the last yeah. five years. And you went to chiropractor last year, you know, a hundred, you know, and you've been in eight car accidents. You can tell me about any of that. You can get all that kind of stuff in front of a jury. Jury, they're already looking at the plaintiff a little bit skeptically because they're there asking for money. Mm -hmm. Right. So then if you can put that together and now show and really establish that that person is, is being greedy or trying to game the system or, or is, is, puffing their numbers juries typically don't like that so in my experience i agree with what you said that the that the common juror you come across in this area um, views a plaintiff skeptically yep. when they're making a personal injury claim for damages um, but the flip side of that um, if you're when i've represented real estate investors or businesses and a business dispute right a lot of times those claims are way more speculative than the guy that got T-boned. Right. You know, and they're looking at that guy like, you know, everybody's back hurt, so what? Right. But then my guy's saying, well, if I, if, if not for this condemnation or not for this, uh, the actions of this um, real estate broker or whatever it may sure. be, um, I would have, you know, I would have, you know, really shot the moon or I would have, I would have made all this money and everything would have gone perfect and, right. and everything, you know, things that never works out like that. And people are, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yep. You know, people seem to, to um, feel more sympathy for right. the businessman that, that missed out on the multi-million dollar opportunity where everything was going to go to plan yep. than the, the, the guy that got in a, a car wreck that wants. Um, I think there's a real perception out there that, that people are gaming the system 
lawyers included. Yeah. <laughs> and heck, I live I live on that parasite too, so I'm not trying to say I'm some you know better you know, but uh, but um, you know, you get in a car accident today, you're gonna get five videotapes and eight letters from various lawyers from all over, um, whether you were, you know, injured or not injured or whatever. And folks kind of all know that and they see the advertising on TV and they see all those sorts of things. And here is much more tasteful than where you go to a lot. You I mean, you go to some of the bigger yeah. cities and there's some pretty egregious <laughs> video commercials that I see up there that are almost kind of funny, um, but, but they're not. Um, and I think I think that's where that difference is. I think folks are looking skeptically because they're already, you know, the whole ambulance chaser metaphor and all that kind of stuff that's out there. I think folks are understand what happens. I think that there's there's not enough money in in uh, personal injury practice, like mass personal injury practice, to do that anymore. Because I I go down. Um, my my uh, dad lives in uh, in. Uh, southeastern south carolina and so it's on the the border with georgia and so we get the georgia television ads right and the charleston ads right and you see all that stuff yep. in savannah and charleston which are probably you know bigger than wilmington but comparable you know right. comparably sized cities and you see all that stuff yep. the, you know the the themed like the hulk and the you know and the right. and the ambulance chasers and like the, I've, I've talked about it before but my favorite ad was a guy like running like the firm he's just like running 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 and at the end he he reaches the ambulance right and that was one of them from savannah and you know they're just upfront about it there's rapping lawyers in savannah yeah, yeah. i mean they're they're really funny but it's like you know who's got time to put that together in north carolina with yeah. with kind of the way that our laws are structured yeah no i the the 414 issues really had an effect um on on the bottom line as to as to what you can do and i i think they're probably i still think I know I, I, I get yelled at, but I, that's about the fairest law. Like your bill is what somebody's willing to pay for your bill. You know, I mean, your bill isn't what somebody writes down on a piece of paper. Like yeah. if you had a car and, you know, you try to say, well, the sticker price on this car was $80,000 and we've got a dispute over it, but I know you paid $70,000 for that car. <laughs> you don't get to put the 80,000 that yeah. somebody wrote down on a piece of paper in there. I mean, and it's this, and, and you know, in health insurance has gotten to that point where they've, bump those bills up so high, but they're willing to take 30 cents on the dollar, 40 cents on the dollar. It just, yeah. It's, but it's, I understand, I understand the counter argument. Yeah. It's just kind of, it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult really to determine what's real and what's not with the, with the bills. Cause you got a different, you got a whole different, yep. um, depending on your, your lot, you've got the same procedure could cost 10 different things. Yep. And it's usually a pretty wide range too. Well, and the flip side is, you know, the chiropractor cases might, might be worth more now because health insurance never pays chiropractor no. bills. So those bills are always what they are. Um, so, and then you've got all the games where some of the doctors and some of the hospitals aren't submitting their bills and then some are selling them to lean companies like key health. And, and then there's, that's a whole disaster mess road to go down to try to ferret out all that too. So, yeah, I, I had earlier on, early on when the tort reform laws were new and, and kind of everybody's trying to figure out what's going on, I would have situations where some of my clients the medical providers would would take the position that they're they're not going to accept insurance right. um, if it's a if it's a third party liability case right 
you know, but they're contractually obligated with the with the person's yeah. health insurance company to take it. Yeah. And you know, and it's one thing if it's a clear cut automobile accident where you know there's going to be a, a payment versus you're in a, a slip and fall, right? Or you don't know if the third party's got insurance. Or right. there's there's a lot of things that can happen. And it, and I found it kind of offensive that they were doing that. But yep. it's one of those things where you know, going back to what you learned for in law school, it's like yeah, that, and it, when I was in law school, I was probably thinking, oh, that'd be great. I'm gonna take down the insurance. I'm gonna take down the hospital and right. sue them for for this for breaching their contract. And right. then now you're looking at it like I don't have time for that. And and you know that's that's fighting city hall. And you know it did set up. They don't do that anymore. Yep. But it certainly was that was a problem. And you'd kind of get it on both ends from the plaintiff side because you get, you're getting it from the hospital who's who's not who's after your client to pay their bills and they want full freight or they want you to sign an assignment of benefits and right. all that. And then you're getting it from the defense, which is saying. You know, you didn't mitigate your damages because you didn't submit your insurance claim because you didn't take yeah. advantage of your insurance oh, benefits. We had a trial over at our office um, that Ron Medlin was trying, and the hospital wouldn't submit the bills. And um, it was like a five thousand dollar bill, I want to say, and they were pretty close together. Like they, the, the settlement number wasn't too bad, but they're they're in they're Monday morning sitting there getting ready to try a jury trial. The judge gets up on the bench and, say, and they, they have this motion in limine about whether that bill should be submitted or not because it hasn't been, you know, tendered for any kind of coverage and can't meet the 414 standard. And uh, the judge put out a bench warrant for the billing clerk <laughs> at New Hanover and said, you need to come down here and explain to me why this was, hasn't been done. And, uh, and they zeroed the bill out immediately. Wow. And the case ended up getting worked out. But, good, um, good for the judge. Yeah, but it, look, that goes to your point. It makes it difficult for the plaintiff to try to even resolve the case because they can't figure out who they're supposed to pay and how much they have to pay. And I mean, it, it, it almost forces y'all into court in, yeah. in some situations. So it's yeah, it certainly makes it difficult. Well, Steve, I appreciate your time and I appreciate you coming on. I'm getting ready to enjoy my professionalism, yeah. uh, uh, secure leave in, in, in a little bit. So uh, um, it's it good talking to you yeah. as, as always. And then thanks a lot for coming on. You too, Justin. I appreciate it, man. Stay COVID free, y'all. Yeah, I'm going to try. All right.